Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell. And I am here with Ian Adair. Really excited to have you here, Ian. Thanks for coming. Oh, I'm excited. Um, Thank you for having me. Yay. So he is the CEO of the Grace Point Foundation in Tampa, Florida, a nonprofit that raises awareness and financial support for mental health and addiction services. Ian is also a three-time nonprofit CEO. And by focusing on winning donor attention, which I know you talk a lot about on your website and in your speeches, he has influenced corporate and nonprofit teams, volunteer boards, and frontline staff around the country. Ian is a speaker, an author, and an advocate concerning mental health awareness and addressing mental health in the workplace. He wrote the book, Stronger Than Stigma, A Call to Action, Stories of Grief, Loss, and Inspiration. This is a book that shares stories of ordinary people in extraordinary situations in order to help people connect and break down stigmas behind mental health, wellness, and more. So very busy person here, but thanks for coming on the show, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. And, and it's outside of a conference setting. So that's what's great too. We get to I know. Outside. I know, right? I'm so excited. I'm just so excited to get back to conferences, in-person conferences. But who knows where the world will be when this actually gets released or comes out. I mean, we could all be in lockdown again. Who knows? <laughs> let's hope it doesn't go that way. So let's begin, you know, let's begin with your story, how you got involved in the social sector and nonprofit work. Wow. So like the origin story, the origin comic, story, comic book number like one. Marvel, that, yes. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think a lot of people, I was introduced to, you know, the people involved in nonprofit world growing up. I mean, I, I grew up and I'm very open about how some of the struggles and challenges I had growing up. I had a parent battling addiction. I had another parent battling mental illness. My father who was battling addiction left fairly early in my life and so we, we, we required the help of others. And I was always in a, in a kind of in a setting where I was seeing how uh, mentors and, and programs that were out there for kids that, you know, were, were living in poverty and, and needed help were available. So whether it was a Boys and Girls Club, whether it was a YMCA, whether it was an after school program, I always seemed to benefit from, from nonprofit programs and community programs. And so that was kind of my introduction into uh, this world. And I just end up finding some amazing mentors, some amazing coaches that, that helped guide me and help me get to college. And so when I was looking to figure out what to do after college, I wanted to get into the nonprofit world. It seemed like where I was most comfortable. So that was kind of my shotgun into working with youth programs and in case management and kind of figuring out where my niche was. 
until I had uh, this amazing executive director that I worked for for Boys and Girls Clubs in Georgia tell me, you have a great gift for telling stories. Would you mind sharing about our programs and the kids at an event? And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being on stage. I enjoyed yes. making people laugh, telling them kind of the, the, the silliness and the funniness and the awkwardness of human relationships and how kids respond to our programming. And then the next year, he was like, well, that was, that was successful. Maybe this time you have an ask or you make an ask or call to action or an, or an ask for, mm-hmm. for funds after the story. And I, I felt comfortable again. So that was kind of my path forward into fundraising and storytelling, which I didn't see coming. I thought I'd be in program and direct service my whole life because that's just where I felt comfortable and that's where I felt natural. But he really pushed me into being more comfortable on stage, being more comfortable with the ask. And then you just get caught in it and uh, you get you, you meet incredible people and you refine your skills and you get opportunities and you you move around the country with amazing opportunities. And I've been incredibly fortunate and blessed to run three organizations, all of which that I have very personally tied to with their missions and connected to their mission. And that's where I'm at Grace Point Foundation today, very personally mm-hmm. connected to the mission of mental health, very personally connected to the mission of addiction. And I've been here for the last four and a half years. And it's been great to kind of merge the two personal passion with uh, mission and interaction and organization doing some great work. Great. Yeah. So tell me about the Grace Point Foundation and the mission and the work that you do there. Yeah. The, the foundation has has been around a while. And when I came on board, it was kind of one of those scenarios that I think you get a little bit worried about as an executive director when you find out you're, I believe, the seventh executive director in oh, 10 years. Yeah. And you're given the, the motivational speech of, well, <laughs> if it doesn't work out with you, we think we're going to just close the doors of the organization. And it was just one of those things oh where... No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. It was the worst pep talk ever. And, and my boss and I have an amazing relationship. And he can't even... He remembers having that conversation. He almost feels wow. bad about it now. But uh, now that things have worked out really well. But I think it, I think if you if you take a step back and look at mental health today, mental mm-hmm. health is is slowly progressed in terms of services and client care. Yes. What yes. it's always been... Has, historically bad at, just mm. not good at all. Mm-hmm. It's telling it's telling its story, sharing its impact. Because if mental health is already something, as you know, that's very hard to talk about already, yes. I think we freeze a little bit in how we share the story of the people yes. that we serve. And so that's where they were. It wasn't because they weren't doing great service. It wasn't because they didn't have great programs. It wasn't because they weren't staffed with qualified amazing people. They just didn't know how to tell that story. And so... Right. How do you tell that story? And it's tough, but I think it helps when you have someone that came in like me that had just started to really open up four to five years prior to that about my own mental health and about my own struggles and about my family struggles. Because I got to a place where I was like, you know, my mom had passed away about 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. She had battled mental illness for a long time. She had had a suicide attempt, and a lot of these things were very quiet because you kept them quiet and you didn't want to tell anybody because of the stigma associated with it. Yep. And then when I started experiencing battles of depression and anxiety and panic attacks and, and all these things, who was I going to tell? I was already taking care of somebody who was struggling, so I mm-hmm. kept it quiet. 
Mm. And then I started meeting people who started sharing their story. And I started meeting people who made it comfortable to talk about it. And I found the more I talked about it, the better I got. And I'm like, you know what? I bet there's somebody like me that just needs to hear someone like me say it. Right. And then they'll start talking more about it. And then that's how it and that's normalize how it. it. Normalize the discussion. It. It's the domino effect a hundred percent. And dominoes keep falling the more people talk about it. So now fast forward to today where it seems like it's getting a lot better for people to open up about addiction, open up about depression, anxiety, open up about their struggles. It's trending more on social media. We're seeing yeah. it more uh, yes. in the news cycle. But I still think, and it's getting that way for a lot of professional athletes. Um, we've seen documentaries about oh, Olympi- Olympians. Simone Biles. Right. It, it's getting better for folks like that, but it's still, it still hasn't turned the corner yet. It still hasn't got to that level of air cover, as I like to say. Yes. For regular people, for you and me and, and, mm-hmm. and people that that go about their busy professionals that go about their jobs every single day, students that hold everything in, you know, retired seniors that are dealing with things too. And I think the reason it still hasn't translated to everyday people is because we're the group that still fears losing to three things that matter most in our life. And that's Mm -hmm. our friends and our families and our job. Mm -hmm. But I applaud all of those professional athletes. I applaud all those performing artists all those people with any kind of social media following that are getting out there and talking about it because it, it's, it's getting better, it's slowly getting better. And we need more people to talk about it. So I spend a majority of my time really bringing this issue to, uh, you know, C-suite organizations, mm-hmm. uh, executive directors, nonprofit boards and say, look, we got them talking about it over here, but you also need to know, you have a, a large employee base that needs you talking about it as well to give them air cover to make them feel comfortable. Absolutely. So is this what inspired you to write your book? So tell now, me about how that came to be. In a lot, in a lot of ways, I think the, the book was kind of uh, something I've always had on my mind. It was birthed out of COVID. That's what I like to tell people wow. because our biggest event of the year that we started three years ago is called Stronger Than Stigma. And, and, mm. we weren't, and we weren't able to have that event because of COVID. And, mm-hmm. and one of the best things about that event is that we bring people from the community that have a little bit of uh, a social clout, I'd like to say, have a little bit of uh, following. Uh, they're successful. They're people normally associated with either where they work or their job title or how much money they have or their success. And no one really looks at them as somebody who's a caregiver or somebody suffering from a mental health condition, Mm -hmm. or somebody in active recovery. So when they go on stage and share their story, it's pretty impactful. And it hits people in a certain way. And so I was like, how can I, in the absence of this event, continue these stories? And so the momentum of Mm -hmm. uh, sharing lived experience, talking about recovery, Mm -hmm. continues forward. And so we started with just putting some of these stories together and it, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And yeah. I was really incredibly fortunate to meet people for the first time willing to give their story to somebody else Yes, and put it in a different format. Cause all, yeah. because the book is designed a, a, a specific way and each story mm-hmm. is broken up into three distinct parts, yeah. obviously not how they told it, but 
you know, they, I, 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 I let them be very comfortable with how I was going to do the storytelling and they enjoyed the process and I made them a part of the process the whole way. So mm-hmm. it was just interesting. We didn't know if the book was going to work. Um, we didn't know if it was going to be something we were able to get, to get out in time. Obviously COVID pushed a lot of things back oh, yeah. and, and delayed a few things, but I think for us, you know, the two main goals for the book really were first just to share stories from a variety of perspectives. Yes. And that included caregivers, suicide survivors, um, people who've experienced profound grief and loss, victims of abuse and neglect, and then those just managing their mental health every day. And, and, and I think people need to see the management of the everyday from people that they admire and respect. And I think the second thing was I wanted to inspire people to act and get involved. Exactly. I I think that it's inspiring when you can when people can share examples of how to tell stories around uncomfortable issues. That's a question I get very frequently. That's something a lot of my clients and, and students and you know other nonprofits really struggle with. How do we authentically and ethically collect and share stories? that provide agency and maintain integrity, but are also still really compelling and will, you know, hopefully incentivize people to take action. So I love that. Thank you for bringing that book into the world and helping us have these discussions. But what are some other concrete ways that nonprofits can really help, you know, bring this culture of well-being into their workplaces create a culture of openness at work around these kinds of hard discussions. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's the one thing that a lot of people are struggling with because we, I keep, when I talk to whether it's uh, HR directors or executive directors or CEOs, Mm -hmm. they're bombarded with, we need to do more. We need to do more. And, And they usually have their hand up saying, okay, what is that more we need to do? Please help. And, a lot of times organizations fear that that more is going to be costly, that more is going to be something that puts them in an uncomfortable spot or a liability spot. And I have to remind them that there's a lot of very low cost, no cost things that you can do to create that work environment of safety. Psychological safety is, is, is more the prevalent term today, but where people not only feel safe if they are already going through something, where if they need to disclose, they can because they need to get treatment, they need to get help. Mm-hmm. Or if at some point something happens to them while they work at their at their workplace and their environment, and they're like, I'm in a I'm in a work environment where I feel safe, so I can deal with this right away. And I think yeah. that's what I talk about a lot. So kind of the four or five strategies that I always bring up is first and foremost, leadership has to make sure it's safe for people to have this discussion or to address mental health related issues. And that's both safe online and offline because I've I've worked in large environments and, you know, you can't, you can't have something in person events be one way and then on Slack or Yammer or any internal office communication tool, it look a different way. It's gotta, you gotta feel safe both online and offline. And it, it really starts with the top, to do that. So they have to create that environment with this is we're going to we're going to talk about these issues. People need to feel safe about these issues. They need to know they're in a judgment-free zone. I think it really does start with leadership 
having to do that thing that sometimes they don't always get to do, yes. which is lead and which is lead their people. Second is, you know, if you have people that are struggling you've already, and you've already set up that it's safe to talk about and safe to address, you got to allow employees flexibility in their work schedule to get the help that they need. One of the biggest jokes that I say in almost every conference I go to that usually gets somewhat of a laugh and then somewhat of a stare down from some executive directors. <laughs> or, or oh, board, and you know, it's a good joke. Or board presidents. It's like, I was like, you know, if the workforce today, if 70% of the workforce today is millennial or Gen Z, and they have a different set of priorities than what we had as Gen X or above, which all we ever had was, let's face it, salary and title. Because if you look at my early history and on my LinkedIn, it's like I'm in the witness protection program. If you told me I could be a manager instead of a coordinator, I jump. If you told me I could be a director instead of a manager, because that's how we were coached mm-hmm. to progress in, in, in the workforce. Well, the group today is looking for a whole different group of things. And usually salary and title aren't even in the top four or five. So I have to remind leaders that they need to understand that. And And to get back to my original point, if a flexible work schedule is the number one thing usually people want in the workforce today, especially the majority, then you need to consider it because you're going to retain your best people if you know that you're going to re- you're going to uh, recruit top talent if you know that and but it also helps people take care of what they need to take care of when it comes to their mental health or their physical health when you just have the ability to make appointments and one of the biggest things we hear in the mental health space is now that I'm addressing concerns that I have I don't know how to make an appointment I don't know how to get across town I don't know how to get get the help, even where to start. Right. Or even if I have a telehealth option, I work in an open concept office and there's no private place for me to go to even talk to my therapist or counselor through telehealth. So I I, I know people that actually have to go to their parking garage to talk to their therapist because that's the only private place that they can go that limits them from having to leave the, Mm -hmm. the grounds or the campus of which they work on. So allowing flexibility, I think is something anybody can do as an HR director or a people manager so that people get the help that they need. You know, one of the biggest things that I, I, I say is really, it's not the first thing you want to put in place, but it's definitely like the most impactful. It's just sharing stories of lived experience, sharing mm-hmm. stories of recovery, sharing stories of being a caregiver. And it usually starts with leadership having do that because you can't ask your workers, well, you share your stories. They're like, well, I'm not going to feel safe. Yeah. It has to start from the top down. I agree. It, it just has. I mean, I think that the president, the precedent is always executives, managers, company leaders, uh, because when, when leaders are vulnerable and share their experiences, and I know, and I know that's, that's hard to do for some people when leaders are vulnerable and share either their personal experiences or the experiences of those people close to them. I think it creates uh, transparency and acceptance in the workplace, and it really helps employees that are hearing this for the first time really feel that they're in a place where if they disclose, they're not going to be fearful of what might happen because the, the precedent's already been set for this type of sharing, this type of understanding. So I think you know th- these are really absolutely zero cost to sharing personal stories into letting your staff know that they should feel safe where they work. The last couple of things I think are really easy. You just educate your people when you can 
about mental health and mental illness. Uh, one of the best resources out there that I believe is free to everybody is mental health first aid training. It's a one day course. Uh, I've taken it. You're certified for two years. It doesn't make you a mental health professional. I have to remind people that, but it does help give you that knowledge base. Mm -hmm. So when you see somebody that you believe is struggling, you start to recognize the signs and you're more confident to go up to them and say, what's going on? Is, Is there something I can help you with? I've noticed this, this, and this. We're here for you. And I think it, it, it helps those managers that feel uncomfortable talking about mental health as it is, just get more comfortable with, I was always uncomfortable, not because I didn't want to get to know my employees. I was uncomfortable because I didn't know what the signs really were. So you just create those yeah. opportunities. And, and, I, and I tell people all the time too, that like, how do we start this? And I'm like, well, lucky for you, mental health has days and weeks and months all over the calendar. So you could just right. start right there. What do you mean? You mean cause and awareness days? Yeah, cause and awareness days. I mean, Mental Health Awareness Month is in May, but I mean, it just snowballs from there. You have uh, Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, BIPOC Awareness Month is is July, Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, that is September, World Mental Health Day, that's October 10th. But there's lots of days in between that allow you opportunities to share internally to your staff about mental health and then remind them of any resources you might have at your organization, whether it's an EAP program, an emergency assistance program, whether it's a wellness program that you've already put in place because mental health and wellness go together and reminding people about self-care, taking care of themselves. So we can all go together and feel Mm -hmm. very natural. You just have to start doing it. Hey there, I'm interrupting this episode to share an absolutely free training that I created that's getting nonprofits of all sizes, big results. Sure, you've been spending hours on social media, but what can you actually show for it? With all this posting and Instagramming and TikToking, does it really translate into action? In my free training, I'll show you exactly how to take people from passive fans to passionate supporters, and I'll give you specific steps to create social media content that actually converts. Head on over to nonprofitsthatconvert.com. Again, that's nonprofitsthatconvert.com and start building a thriving social media community for your nonprofit right now without a big team, lots of tech overwhelm, or getting stuck on the question, what do I do next? Let me show you how it's done. I can't wait to see what you create. So here's a question for you, because I know you have a family, you have a speaking and consulting business, you're CEO of a nonprofit. How do you practice self-care in your own life? I mean, it's a struggle because I have to practice what I preach, but I I schedule it. I schedule it. And I, I think the biggest thing that's helped me is... I don't spend a lot of time doing things a lot of my friends spend a lot of time doing. I don't spend a lot of time watching TV. I'm not really involved in uh, personal sports leagues myself. Most of my personal time goes directly to my family or directly to my own mental health care. So I just manage my time a little differently and I'm just involved in, in different things. I know talking about my own mental health, I know talking about mental health can be exhausting itself. 
you can only go on stage so many times and share stories of struggle or challenge and then not walk away or go back to your hotel room and just be exhausted from it. So you have to, I have to really manage it. And I manage getting up and personalizing my own time. I manage getting up and personalizing my own health. I've become very scheduled in how I do it. That's great. I really respect that. I have to schedule time also. And then I also have to, I really have to understand my own cues, which I think is very difficult for, for a lot of people, yes. because especially, especially as a leader, you're taking care of others. You're constantly aware of what's going on. You're constantly looking for cues from other people as a parent as a partner, you're always trying to take care of other people. So for any nonprofit leader out there that is very burned out, make sure you do schedule some time, take some time for yourself, or even just take some time to reflect on what kind of self-care you know you might need. So I, I think that's incredibly important. Well, you talk a lot about you know advocacy. You're a huge advocate for overcoming the stigma associated with mental health discussions, but you also talk a lot about leadership and leading with empathy, leading with compassion and leading to drive action. So in your opinion, especially as we are emerging, hopefully from the darkest part of the pandemic, maybe we're going into this next normal, this new normal this new environment, how can leaders really adapt? How can they, like, how has leadership changed? Yeah, it's that. And that's the thing. I mean, that's, that's, that's right there. The the heart of it. Leadership has Mm -hmm. changed a lot in the last five to 10 years. And I think, I think a lot of why it's changed because who's in the workforce today and what are they wanting? You know, when you're kind of growing up in leadership in the, in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands, it was very authoritative or authoritarian leadership. There's really only two styles. And then when you get to a leadership position, and it's funny when you get people to actually be honest about, well, I finally got here and now I'm going to be that same way with my people and I'm going to drive them. And, and it's like, well, the world's changed. And when you're working with, like I said, 70% of the workforce today that doesn't want the things that you wanted, you can't, you know, it's hard to incentivize them that way. Because they're asking for things that you just can't possibly comprehend. They're asking for access to new technology, a flexible work schedule, a positive work culture, Mm -hmm. professional development, coaching and mentoring. Even one of the top five things that's popping up is is mental health and wellness. In none of those things do you hear salary or title. So it's really, really hard for somebody who has only been coached and molded a certain way to relate to that and for them to have to realize now at achieving a leadership level that they need further professional development and training is a little bit of a shock. And for those, and for those uh, executives, whether they're the executive director, operating officer, whatever, whatever it is, HR director, for them to have to hear that, it's tough. And then they start to wonder why uh, they're losing good people. They start to wonder why they're, they can't recruit as well. So that you, you see companies that struggle with this the most are ones that are putting bonuses if, if for we have all these positions available and there's a bonus if you apply for it. And then there's another bonus if you stay six months. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see 
who's really struggling with it. And I've seen this in my own, in my, in my own organization. I've, mm-hmm. I've heard about it from several of my colleagues. These bonuses aren't working because mm-hmm. people have heard how bad the work culture is. People have heard yep. their willingness, uh, they're not, their willingness not to be flexible and they don't want to work there. And that's what we're seeing. So I know organizations that pay less, that basically call everybody the same title, but because it's a positive work culture, mm-hmm. because there's flexibility, because mm-hmm. they have unconventional hours or compressed work weeks or amazing benefits, people are drawn to that because yes. it's just better for them and it's better for their families. It's better for their mental health. I mean, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to go back into a nine to five, <laughs> but because of the culture, when I wasn't a nine to five, you know, the last time I had a full-time job really was 11 years ago. And I remember exactly what you're talking about. You know, you had to be first in and last out. You had to constantly be looking busy. You had to be in the office. You had to always have FaceTime with everyone. And this was being a director of development. There was so much that I could have done and probably been more productive if I'd had a flexible work schedule. And this was before I had children. That was when I ended up doing starting my consulting business was when I had my first child because of the flexibility that obviously it offers. So I think that's incredibly interesting. So for the, for the executive directors, the board members, and even the people out there that want to advocate for this, what are some strategies that they can use? How can they start to create this in their organizations if they understand what you're talking about, but they're kind of running up against brick walls? I think, I think the thing that I say the most is if leaders want to be supportive, just by normalizing conversations about mental health, which really is the best way to reduce the stigma within the workplace, yeah. the goal for leaders should always be to promote the acceptance and inclusion of those dealing with the mental health related issue. And they can do this by just improving support systems. They can do this um, by spreading awareness when possible. They can do this by creating an environment of safety for discussions to take place. People ask me all the time, well, if I take certain classes, will that mean that we're good to go? And I'm like, it, it's, it's, it's not, not like you check off a box. It's right? a, I, I mean, it's I remember even, even when I was doing diversity and inclusion work, I remember a manager telling me, so if we take this class on unconscious bias, well, we've solved unconscious we'll solve, bias. We'll solve racism. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, well, if it's unconscious and it's unconscious to different people at different levels, I doubt one training is going to hit everybody with the same brushstroke. But I, I tell them it's 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 the one thing they don't want to hear because it's difficult to hear and to cultivate a, a culture of empathy and psychological safety, wellness. It, yes. it just requires a, a tremendous amount of consistency, yes, and effort and encourage, of, of course. And I think, and, but they have to understand employees want their managers yes. to show empathy, they do. Uh, to be concerned. And these actions build trust with their teams, and we find nowadays when you really talk to people, why they leave. If they're really honest, they're not going to say, well, I'm getting paid more right. over here. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, they're going to make me a director and pay me $2,500 more. And that's not why they're leaving. They're leaving because if you ask most people, they tell you they didn't get along with their manager. Right. Right. And, or, or they or didn't. The work, or yeah, the work culture was toxic. Yep. And they felt, yeah, they didn't feel supported because the workplace was toxic. They tried to talk about it, report it, and they weren't supported. That is what a majority of people in the last two years are saying. 
And now with COVID, we're seeing a lot of people Mm -hmm. saying, I don't feel supported because it's one size fits all for what we're doing. It's, we all got to work from home, one size fits all. Now we all got to come back by this hard date Mm -hmm. and they're not ready to come back or they don't Mm -hmm. feel safe. And it's like, where do you, where do you raise your hand? And that's what psychological safety is. I mean, that's what vulnerability is. Can you raise your hand and say, I don't feel safe. Can you raise your hand and say, I have a question. And if you can't do that, you're probably working in the wrong organization or for the wrong company. I think on that note, on that point, that's what we need to go into this next year or the next few months and just continually be reevaluating. Are we being authentic? Are we being open? Are we being vulnerable? And are we asking that? Are we asking that of ourselves before we ask that of our employees? So thanks so much, Ian. This was fantastic. I'm sure people are going to want to get in touch with you. I will link to your book in the show notes, but how else can people find you? I think the easiest way, Twitter, Instagram, I have the same handle, Ian M as in Michael Adair. 11 years ago, Julia, I'm still obviously bent out of shape about this. There is a famous magician in Canada named Ian Adair. So all my social media thunder. Oh my gosh. That's so so funny. I had to throw in the middle initial. I have since built up my my following to where I like to say that he needs to give me back my name. Yes, he does. But it's 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 just it's 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 funny. I just use my middle initial for everything. That's why I even put it in the in the book title, just because it helps people find me a lot easier. Yes. Well that makes <laughs> so, sense. So that's the easiest way to do it. I tell people all the Ian time. Adair. Okay. Uh, don't text me or call me after eight o'clock because I'm very much a family person. But if you DM me on Twitter or Instagram, between 11 and one in the morning, chances are I'll probably get back to you because, yep. because, because I'm up and my family's asleep and I've enjoyed having this international family that talks mm. about mental health, talks about nonprofit issues, talks about fundraising issues. So it's great to con- communicate and connect with people in the later hours, but happy to talk to anybody who's looking for help or needs advice on uh, how they can bring uh, this issue up at their office, with their board, with their executive, any time of day. I love that. Thank you so much. Okay. So Ian M. Adair, my social media handles are literally all different. Every single one is different. So <laughs> I'm like, the, I'm the here the, being the social media consultant. Every single one of mine is, is different. So yeah, I don't know. And then there's a famous singer called Julia Campbell. There's a bunch of Julia Campbell's an actress, but follow Ian buy the book and check out all of this stuff. You'll probably see him speaking at an AFP or a nonprofit chapter near you. All right. Thanks again, Ian. Thank you so much. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then... You can find me on Instagram at JuliaCampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn. Mm-hmm.